Matthew chapter 10 from verse 34. Jesus said, Don't suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me isn't worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me isn't worthy of me. And anyone who doesn't take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives the one who sent me. Anyone who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And anyone who receives a righteous man because he's a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he's my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. This is the Gospel of Christ. Friends, do take a seat. I don't know about you, but the last couple of weeks, as we've looked at these instructions of Jesus, as he's about to send his 12 out to proclaim the gospel, have been very challenging. I'm not sure if I was choosing passages randomly, I'd have naturally chosen these. And one of the joys, and I guess one of the hard things, about the way we preach systematically through books of the Bible is that we don't avoid the hard bits. Uh, A couple of people this past week were in touch with a, a concern over something I said, Uh, And I just want to give a kind of longish introduction to uh, address two particular concerns. Uh, It's a long introduction. It'll be a short sermon. I'm going to use this really to set the the whole topic in context. Uh, But when I get to the end of the introduction and pray, don't worry, it is a short sermon. Um, Incidentally, those who are in touch, they were in touch very kind of tentatively and kindly and gently. I want to say to all of you, please feel free. If, if I've said something that's been confusing or you think's wrong, please don't uh, feel that you, you can't be in touch. I, I won't be cross or, or grumpy. And if you thought it, quite possibly other people have thought the same. Uh, the first thing I want to just say uh, to clarify is this. Uh, some people thought that uh, as I talked last week about um, chatting to people by the uh, uh, Rennes rugby match, I'd given people the impression that uh, unless we're kind of knocking doors... Uh, and talking to complete strangers about Jesus. We're not doing evangelism. And that absolutely wasn't my intention. And I think underlying that was a sense that unless we're confrontational with the gospel, uh, then we're not doing things properly. And I don't think that's true. I do want to say that, of course, there are times that it's absolutely right to be bold and intentional. If I ever manage to get on an airplane again, um, uh, as I sit down, I'll say to the person, I'll I'll, I'll pray that I have an opportunity to speak to the person next to me. Now, in a sense, I hate doing that. One of the things I love about being on an airplane is uh, nobody can talk to me. I just read my book. But I always try and pray when I get on a plane that I have an opportunity to speak to someone. And uh, when I do that, I, I take it I'll never see that person again. And so there's a rightness in that kind of situation about being bolder. We can't build a relationship with them, and so we can be fairly direct. Now, that doesn't mean that we're rude. I wouldn't turn to them and say, uh, do you know anything about Jesus? That would be bizarre, really, wouldn't it? But I would try and fish deliberately. I'd say to them, uh, you know, you get conversation going. So, some people aren't interested in talking, obviously. You leave those people. But having talked about the weather, 
I'd, I'd say something like, what, what, do you, um, what do you do in your free time? And uh, they'd say they play badminton or whatever they do. And if they're a half-decent person, they'll then say to me, well, what do you do in your free time? And I'd say, well, I, I um, run a Bible study in my church. And they go, oh, okay. And then I say, well, do you ever go to church? And easily, there's a chance to speak about Jesus. Now, those kind of relationships, we don't try and build a relationship. We can be bold. But on the other hand, with our neighbors or our colleagues or um, people in our community or something like that, we do have a, a chance, don't we, to build a relationship. We don't need to be so, as it were, hit and run. Uh, and, and it's right that we, we do try and do that. But, of course, uh, there is a need to be intentional. We could spend a whole year, couldn't we, building a relationship with a neighbor and never speak about Jesus. And I love the way Jane modeled that. Uh, for us just earlier in the interview of dropping little things in I pray, can I pray for you Uh, and and I think that intentionality is really important and it may well be that there are some of us who have relationships like that and we've never spoken about Jesus and we need to to, to kind of take the opportunity create the opportunity say this is something that's really important to me I've never had a chance to to tell you about Jesus, Could, could we go for a coffee to do that, the worst they can do is say no uh, so we don't need to be aggressive, but we do need to be intentional. The second thing I would just want to say is, uh, I feel like some people are asking, do I need to do evangelism? Do I need to be committed to God's mission in this way? And for some, this is a source, I think, of deep guilt. And I want to say we, we shouldn't feel guilty. Now, there, it may be that we feel guilty, and, and, and sometimes the Lord prompts us like this, because we are guilty. And uh, when, when we feel guilty, we should always ask, well, have I done something wrong? And if we have, then the right thing to do is to go to the Lord and say sorry and to repent, isn't it? And know that everything is forgiven as we come to him confessing our sin and changing. But I think so often the reason we feel guilty is actually because we're passionate for this uh, task and uh, we know that there is more we could do. We long to do more and and we feel that tension. And I think that's that's a good thing, but it shouldn't be a sense of guilt. I think, though, I do want to flip the question and say, if we've no interest in speaking about Jesus, if we've got no desire to join in God's mission, then I wonder what we've not understood about the gospel. Just imagine that uh, you're um, a beloved friend, a beloved relation. Everywhere you went with them, they were despised. You go into the, the coffee shop, and everyone kind of looks at them as if they're a bit odd. Or uh, you go to the supermarket, and everyone sort of stares at them. I take it if you loved them, there'd be a sense that we'd want to do something. We'd want to stop that. And there is a sense that God is the one who should be honored above everything. And yet everywhere we go in this world, by and large, he's despised. And actually, if we love him, there's a sense we we want to wipe that away, don't we? As people turn back to Jesus. But of course, God is not like a kind of helpless, defenseless child. He's the great judge of the world. And the reality, as we saw three weeks ago is this world is under God's judgment. People are like sheep, harassed and helpless, without a shepherd. And one day God will return and judge the world. And as we look out and see people in that perilous situation, knowing that we have the answer, the solution to God's wrath, how can we not, if we love them, speak of Jesus? Now, of course, if we have that desire, it will come out in a number of different ways. And we shouldn't worry too much about that. But but the question, I think, is do we have the desire? And if not, why not? God's great plan for the world is to reach the world through the church, to call people 
out of darkness into light, into the church, into his saved people. But all of us have a different role, don't we? I was trying to think about this in terms of the army. Um, Not everyone in the army fights on the front line, do they? Imagine if you're in a sort of camp in Afghanistan. There's the guys who fight on the front line, but there are also a number of of logistics people and cooks and that kind of thing. Well, all of them have an important role, even though they're not all on the front line. And I tried to think about that in terms of our church ministries. Think about, um, I don't know why I landed on Mums and Muffins, but think about Mums and Muffins. Mums and Muffins, one of our women's Bible study groups, and they read the Bible, they disciple each other, they uh, evangelize in that group, but they can only do it because they have a team of creche helpers. And the creche helpers aren't doing evangelism or discipleship, but they are facilitating it. And without the creche helpers, Mums and Muffins couldn't help. And there are a number of ministries like that in our church. And that is a great way, isn't it, to get involved in God's mission of reaching the world, although it's not the frontline work. But I take it those cooks in Afghanistan, when the camp is attacked, they too pick up their guns, don't they? And there is a sense that uh, the people who are helping in the creation, mums and muffins or something like that, when they go home to an unbelieving spouse or to unbelieving friends in the neighborhood, they can't just say, well, I did my, my work for God this morning. Actually, love compels us, doesn't it, to pick up our weapons, so to speak, and pray and love and speak to those people. But part of our attention, and this is what brings us into our passage, is that we do not know how people respond. Some may respond well. Many may respond badly. And that brings us to the heart of the issue, I think, that Jesus is raising today. And so I'm giving that very long introduction Let's pray and ask for God's help with this passage. Father, we thank you that you are a speaking God, and we long that you would speak to us. Father, we long that none of us would leave here with a sense of guilt. We pray that if we do feel guilty, we'd examine it, and if there is something we need to confess and repent of, you'd help us to do that, that we'd have the joy of our salvation. But we pray at the same time, Father, that we wouldn't be burdened with a sense of guilt, but that we'd long to do this great task out of love for you, and love for our fellow men and women. So convict us, encourage us, challenge us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Three things I want us to see this morning. The first is that whenever the gospel is proclaimed, it brings division. Whenever the gospel is proclaimed, it brings division. Then I want us to see that Jesus is calling us to put him before everything else. And then third, to see the wonderful blessing we offer as we speak the gospel. First of all, when the gospel is spoken, it brings division. Verse 34 is very striking, isn't it? Jesus says, do not misunderstand. I've not come to bring peace. And it's very striking because that's exactly what most people think Jesus came to bring, isn't it? Did the angels not sing at Jesus' birth, peace on earth and goodwill to all men? Does Isaiah not call Jesus the prince of peace? And here he says, I've not come to bring peace. Many people think the fact that 2,000 years after Jesus' birth, there is no peace on earth, is a sign that Christianity has failed. When we speak of Jesus, and it brings not joy but division, we worry, have we done something wrong? And Jesus says, no, whenever the gospel is proclaimed, it will bring division. It comes like a sword. Now, these verses are confusing in a sense because, of course, there is a sense that Jesus did come to bring peace. The message of the gospel is that you and I, by nature, are at war with God. We're his enemies. 
And the gospel says to us, lay down your weapons, surrender to the king, and he won't treat you like prisoners of war, but rather he'll welcome you into his family. He'll forgive you. Romans 5 says, we were enemies of God, but we've been reconciled to God through the death of his son. And this tells us why the message is urgent, doesn't it? Because when the king finally comes at the end of time, he will bring peace to the earth, but he brings it by crushing his enemies. It's a peace that he will enforce. Have you ever wondered why he lets the struggle continue? Well, it's precisely so many people may hear the gospel and voluntarily lay down their weapons and find peace with him. But of course, as people do that, as people switch loyalties from the world to serving God, it puts them into conflict with those who fight God. As we line ourselves up more and more with God, so those who hate God, who are against God, make us their targets too. Well, Jesus quotes the prophet Micah to say that this is exactly what was prophesied uh, when the Christ came. There'd be divisions, even into families. Verse 35, I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his household. Striking words, aren't they? Now, it's not that Jesus is deliberately coming to divide families. Far from it. But as the, as the gospel invitation goes out, which says to everyone, believe the gospel and you are welcomed into God's family, only some respond. And maybe one or two in a particular family respond. And from the perspective of the others in that family, they've changed their loyalty. And so conflict and hatred follows. And Jesus said we can expect that whenever the gospel is preached. But when it happens... Secondly, Jesus says, put me first. When it happens, put me first. Verse 37 is also a very hard word, isn't it? Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And for some this morning, these aren't kind of academic ideas. The pain and division expressed in these words are very, very real to us. It's worth remembering that Jesus himself knew this pain, didn't he? As he began to preach the gospel, his family, his mother and brothers came out, not to support him, but to take charge of him. They tried to lock him up because they thought he was mad. Some of you will be able to relate to a situation like this. Imagine sitting around a table with unbelieving family or friends, and, and they're just trashing someone, rubbishing someone. And they throw the conversation to you, expecting you to join in with the bad-mouthing. And you refuse because you want to honor Jesus. So they turn on you. Maybe there are some here who've made their career choices so that they can spend more time serving in some ministry. And parents were hostile. We educated you well, and and you want to do that. You, You want to go to the mission field. What a waste. And Jesus says, if we put our family's desires above him, if we value peace and harmony among our relations above obedience to Jesus, we are not worthy of him. We're not truly following him. But friends, do you see the flip side of this, the wonderful flip side of this? When we do put Jesus first, even when it's costly, even when we wonder, is it worth it? Jesus says, yes, you are worthy of me. I welcome you. 
when we, as some of you I know have done, prioritised being in church with believers and had to be late for a kind of family event or a regular family brunch and you've got flack for it. Jesus says, well done, you are worthy of me. When we've challenged somebody in our family, when we've prayed about it and confronted somebody graciously and as carefully as we can, but somebody who is claiming to be a Christian in our circle, but they've uh, been acting inappropriately, or we've disciplined a child in in a way that we we thought's important, and and it's caused a big kind of hoo-ha, and we wonder, was it worth it? Jesus says, thank you for putting me first. You're living in a way that is worthy. And friends, do we see why Jesus is saying this? He's not saying it to destroy our families. On the contrary, as we live like this, we show our families there is something greater than family. The world says family is everything. Blood is thicker than water. And family is important. It's a tremendous blessing. But it's not the most important thing. And as we model to family or friends that there is something greater than these wonderful things, we point them to Jesus that they too may find him and follow him and love him. I'm sure I've probably said this before, but uh, I began to hear the gospel, to listen to the gospel, when I met a girl who'd just become a Christian. And we began to date. And a Christian friend of mine, I wasn't anywhere a Christian, but I had a friend who was a Christian, uh, said to this girl, if you go with Jesus, he'll, sorry, if you go with James, he'll pull you away from Jesus. And uh, she broke off the relationship. And frankly, that was a stark kind of reminder to me, a wake-up call to me. I thought, what's more important than me? (laughs) And you see, her doing that signaled there's something more important than relationships. Now, I imagine there are a number of people in her ear saying, if you break it off from Jesus, he'll never hear about... uh, Sorry, if you break it off from James... Jane, I've written Jane in my notes. That was a little bit silly. If you if you break it off from James, he'll never hear about Jesus. You should keep going so you get an opportunity to speak of him. But actually, it was putting Jesus first that made it clear to me that following Jesus is more than a hobby. And in the same way as we put Jesus before our families, we love them by showing them the right priorities. But it's not just family, is it? Jesus says, unless you love me more than you love your very self, you're not worthy of me. Look at verse 38. Anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. We've sort of sanitized the cross, haven't we? We think of it as a lovely piece of jewelry. But the person carrying their cross was walking to the place of execution. And Jesus says, you are to love me more than you love your very life. And in some cases, that may mean physical death. I'm told there were more martyrs in the 20th century than the whole of Christian history put together. But in our context, it means more often to crucify our desires, to put down the things we long for when they clash with Jesus and put him first. And that is painful. It means we say no to deeply cherished desires if they're not compatible with Jesus' plan for our good life. But the thing with carrying a cross is not just the physical pain, but the social stigma. Those carrying a cross would often walk through their neighborhoods on the way to the execution ground, and all their neighbors would come out and jeer at them. It was very public, very humiliating. And Jesus says we are to publicly pick up our cross and follow him, and to recognize that may involve social stigma. Our friends may think us very odd, 
And that is the cost we are to bear. And Jesus says if we're unwilling to die to ourselves, if we're unwilling to love him above our very selves, we're not worthy of him. Because we cannot be a Christian, we cannot follow a crucified Christ without picking up a cross. But this sounds terrible in in a sense, doesn't it? It sounds awful. Not least because the mantra of our age is self-determination. To live is to put oneself, to look out for number one. To be free is to decide how I will live, when I will live, to do what I want. And Jesus says, no, if you agree to follow me, you must sign away all rights to a quiet life of self-determination. And it sounds like slavery to modern ears, doesn't it? And yet the paradox is, Jesus says this is the way to blessing. Look at verse 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it. That is to say, the one who never denies themselves, who, who lives how they want, who, who just grasps for what they desire, the one who never knows the pain and shame of picking up their cross, though they find their life in this world and everyone thinks well of them, they will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, whoever puts me first, whoever picks up their cross, will find it. Because after the crucifixion comes the resurrection. As we humble ourselves before God, he glorifies us. Ultimately, he welcomes us into his kingdom. And yesterday, Ian's funeral asked for those words, read, didn't she? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master's rest. And that is what waits for all who will pick up their cross. But it's not just something for the end, for the end of the, the race. Even now, as we submit to our Savior, we live in the way we are designed to. As we put God first, there may be external troubles, but we have the joy of peace with him. As we, uh, put our, as we come into conflict with our families, we find a new family here. And friends, be encouraged with this word. I don't know what it costs you to follow Jesus, but I promise you, more importantly, Jesus promises you, it is worth it. It is worth it. Because whoever loses his life will find it. And it may be that you're someone who's begun to turn away from Jesus. Maybe you, you know there's an area of your life where you're not picking up your cross. And Jesus invites you to do it. He says, look, I picked up my cross for you that you might be forgiven. That every sin might be wiped away. That you might have a fresh start. So today, pick up your cross again and come follow me. Lose your life that you may find it. Because every cross one day will be turned to a glorious crown. Well, the gospel brings division. And when that division comes, we're to put Jesus first. But as Jesus finishes his speech to the twelve, he says, remember the wonderful blessing we bring to the world as we go out. That although there are many who will reject this message, who will be opposed to the gospel, there will be some who welcome it. Remember how this began. The harvests are plentiful. And when people accept it, we are privileged to be God's agents in bringing the most wonderful message, the most wonderful blessing to the world. Look at verse 40. He who receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Do you see, as the 12 disciples go out and preach the gospel, those who welcome them, 
who give them hospitality, who believe their message, they don't just receive these disciples, they receive Jesus Christ himself. And as they receive the Lord Jesus, they receive the Father in heaven. They receive a welcome into his family, the blessings of the kingdom of heaven. And friends, do you see this lovely association between Jesus and his people, between Jesus and us? Wherever we go, speaking of Jesus, when we say something of how Jesus changed our life, of how he's with us in hard times, of, of how he's got us through some situation, whatever it is, when we speak of Jesus, we offer people the chance of receiving the Lord Jesus. We're not peddling some nonsense. We're not peddling the kind of junk that gets pushed through our letterboxes. Somebody in my family peeled off the little sticker on the letterbox that says no advertising mail. It's the most ridiculous thing to have done. Um, And since then, we've got all kinds of guff. But the gospel is not like that kind of guff, is it? We're messengers of the king. If we're carrying our cross and following Jesus, we can go anywhere in the world with the authority of the King of Kings and hold our heads up high, knowing that if those who hear our message receive us, they don't just get us, they get Jesus. And if they receive Jesus, they receive the Father in heaven and all the blessings of the kingdom of God. What a blessing we offer to the world. He underlines that, doesn't he? Verse 41. Anyone who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. Anyone who receives a righteous man because he's a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And we don't need to get into exactly what the reward is, but you see the point? Whenever people welcome us because we're Jesus' servants, they are rewarded. It's marvelous. We offer the most marvelous blessing to the world. That's why we're running the dessert evening in a few weeks, isn't it? Not a few weeks, a few days. Not just so people can have a nice social time. But so as those ladies hear about Jesus, they can receive him. As we chat to a friend, as we invite someone to church, we are offering them the greatest blessing on earth. Not just on earth, the greatest blessing in the whole universe. It's a blessing so great. It's worth taking the risk of division and conflict that will follow for the good it will bring. But friends, as we finish, let me just show you the other side of the coin. Because it's not just that we bring blessing, is it? It's that we can receive this blessing. And this reminds us that all of our efforts for the king are noticed. I read a few weeks ago a little um, list of those who'd been made members of the New Zealand Order of Merit in the Queen's birthday honours list. I obviously was having a kind of quiet morning and had things to, things to re- nothing else to do. Anyway, I read this list and it was quite interesting to see this sort of things that people were um, awarded for. You know, great works of achievement and achievement to stamp collecting and achievement to community and all kinds of things that I'd never even thought of. But the thing that was really clear, they'd obviously done something for a number of years and worked very hard at it and done it in a way that had got noticed, uh, in in a good way noticed. But that it had to be a huge thing to get that medal. But see what God says. God knows every time someone does a kindness to a Christian and he rewards it. Look at verse 42. If anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little disciples, uh, one of these little ones, that is the disciples, because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. Giving a cup of water was kind of the least thing you could do in in a parched land like Israel, like giving somebody directions on the street. It's kind of a nothing. We don't think twice about doing it. 
And yet Jesus says, even with that tiny thing, it's noticed. When we serve one another for his sake, when we do something to advance the mission of the church for his sake, it is noticed and one day will be rewarded as we write a little card to a missionary, as we give money, as we come here early and pick up some rubbish, as we make somebody a meal, as we take time to say an encouraging word. All of these things are seen by God and will be rewarded. And friends, knowing that, doesn't that encourage us? Doesn't that want us, make us want to put Jesus first, to be committed to his mission of knowing him and making him known, of reaching the lost? So as we go out with the gospel, let's put Jesus first. We can expect division and conflict. And some of you are enduring that this morning. Keep going. Take heart. Because loving Jesus first is the means to great blessing for ourselves. And is the means of bringing the greatest blessing to this world. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we long that you would help us in this great task. We thank you for the privilege of sharing in it with you. We thank you that you look out to the world and see people who are harassed and helpless and you long to gather them in. And we thank you that you use us in that work. So Father, help us. Help us not to be put off by the conflict, but to put you first in all situations and then to rejoice at the blessing we've received and the blessing we can freely give. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.